Welcome to Beyond Synth. Please note, Beyond Synth is an explicit program and may contain inappropriate language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Andy Last, and you are listening to Beyond Synth. This is episode 69. This is part two of my conversation with Makeup and Vanity Set. Uh, we talk a lot more, so I uh, hope you guys like uh, hearing conversations with synthwave artists. Um, if you don't, you are listening to the wrong show and have been listening to the wrong show for 68 episodes, which probably totals... How many hours do you think I've done in Beyond Synth? Let's see. All right, according to the Beyond Synth playlist, Beyond Synth currently amounts to 4.2 days of listening material. That's right. If you started listening to Beyond Synth right now with episode one, it would take you four days to get caught up to the latest episode. That means listening 24 hours a day. So that's cool. That's a, that's a lot of content, a lot of listening content for you. As always, Beyond Synth is brought to you by DownToJam.com. DownToJam is a free website that uh, assists musicians around the world to connect with each other based on musical compatibility. Today I am looking at the script and I'm trying to insert my own words to make it sound like uh, I'm coming up with it on the fly. If you're a musician looking for a partner to jam with or to fill a spot in your band, you're going to want to check out this site and sign up. It's downtojam.com and uh, check it out, D-O-W-N-T-O-J-A-M.com. And so if you're a musician and uh, you're looking for a partner or whatever, there might be some people in your city who have signed up to Down to Jam and you can uh, meet up, man. Make a band. Make some cool music. Uh, Listen, let's listen to a track. Okay, we're going to listen to a song, and then when we come back, we are going to do some of our features. Although the uh, chat with Makeup and Vanity set is the majority of this episode, I think we'll still have some time maybe for some mail sack, and maybe uh, well, we'll do the Patreon, obviously, and all that other stuff that you love. No one loves it, but that's okay. Listen to music now. As you know, I always say, listen. I was like, listen. And then I start talking like I'm some old curmudgeon telling some kid what to do. But now I've just found the solution. Every time I say listen, I'm going to follow it with two music. Because that's what we do here. Here's a track by Pilot Priest. Uh, we talked about Pilot Priest a bunch last episode uh, because um, Makeup and Vanity Sets scored a short film that was directed by Anthony Scott Burns, who is Pilot Priest. And uh, that dude is super talented, and he makes wicked stuff and also makes amazing music. And here is a track called Anamorphic by Pilot Priest.
And that was Pilot Priest with the track Anamorphic off the album Lenses. And it's very clever. There's a few tracks on there, and they are all titled after different kinds of lenses. For film, because Pilot Priest makes movies. If you want to hear your tracks on the show, you can drop me a line. You can contact me at Andy Last on Twitter. Uh, there's also the Facebook page for Beyond Synth. That's facebook.com slash beyond.synth.podcast. And there's the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash beyond-synth. And those are all ways you can get a hold of me, okay? So you can send me a private message on any one of those platforms. Send me your links. I'll check them out. If I dig them, I'll play them on the show. It's as simple as that. Uh, listen, let's go to the mail sack. All right, and the mail sack is open. And this letter is from Bobby B. That's right, Bobby B. Hi, Bobby B. Bobby B is a big fan of Beyond Synth, and I appreciate her listening to the show. She's always uh, listening. That's my great description of a listener. Uh, She asks, and I'll do this in my best uh, female voice. Do you think we'll ever see the day where there will be an annual music event, say like Glastonbury, but specifically for synth artists and fans? I should point out now that I'm not doing a female voice. In fact, Bobby B is British, so maybe I should put on a British accent. Anyways going on. I just wonder sometimes how there's all these amazing synth bands that haven't got massive stardom where they are. In my opinion, so much more talented than certain people who have massive fame and fortune. I thought as you're the synth father, you'd agree that it would be an awesome thing. Thanks, Andy. Bobby B. Well, Bobby B, uh, yeah, it would be cool. I think the issue with doing a synth event and I did an episode with Droid Bishop. Yeah, it was the episode with Droid Bishop and uh, DAD. But DAD left and Droid Bishop was there for the last half hour. And I talked about my fantasy scenario of having a synth event meetup, but like an international one. And the issue is just that the scene is so international that there isn't one specific hub. So there'd have to be this huge agreement on where this thing was going to be held and then the cost involved. Because, you know, if it was held in the States somewhere, you could argue, okay, anyone in the States could, you know, drive a bus, you know, get a bus ticket, or, you know, it wouldn't be an expensive plane ride. But then when you factor in all the people in England and Europe, Australia, you know, uh, there's all, it's everywhere. So I think the main hurdle would just be the decision-making process behind where do you hold this thing and who pays for this thing. Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, they're going to be putting in a lot of money just to get to the venue, right? So, I mean, you know, if I held the thing in Toronto, besides the few local synthwave people, then everyone would have to have a plane ticket, and then there's the actual cost of just hotels and food and all that shit. And then on top of that, you'd have to recoup the costs of, you know, where you're holding the event and all that stuff, and it would be completely unfair to charge people after they've already paid so much just to get to the damn thing. It would just be a logistical hurdle, but... I tell you what, and this is my promise, if I ever win the lottery, (laughs) and we all know that every sentence that starts with, if I win the lottery, is a stupid sentence, but if I did, 
I would fund an event. And part of the funding would be paying for the airfare for all the people to actually get to the thing. It would be a complete money-losing operation. It would simply just be an opportunity for everybody to meet everybody and mingle and socialize and that sort of thing. But, you know, I haven't done the mathematical projections, but I feel like that event, to pay for everyone's airfare and then pay for a, you know, like a hotel to hold the event and all that stuff, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at $100,000 of money, <laughs> at least, maybe two, so... Although I haven't done the math, to be honest with you. I haven't done the math, and I'm so busy that I'm not going to do the math. But I tell you what we are going to do. And thank you for the question, Bobby B. We're going to listen to another track here. This is Chalk Dinosaur. Now, Chalk Dinosaur is awesome. If you aren't familiar with him, go back a few episodes and beyond synth. I had him on the show before. He makes really great music. He started off not necessarily doing synth music, but once he uh, got a hold of some synth equipment, he's made some really cool stuff, and he's got a new album out, it's called Flow State, it's actually got a lot of sort of like funky vibes to it, and it's a cool, he makes, like, the sound of his music is always really good. This is the particular track that I gravitated to uh, immediately, of course, because this one is very synth heavy, this track is called Sci-Fi by Chalk Dinosaur.
that was Chalk Dinosaur with the track Sci-Fi off the album Flow State. Just came out, and uh, it's really good. Check it out. You should check out uh, Chalk Dinosaur. He does really cool music. I dig it. We got the uh, second half of my uh, conversation with Makeup and Vanity set coming up. So before we do that, let's look at the Patreon. We are now in the Patreon zone. Um, what I said last week is still valid. Uh, but what happened was Patreon was actually messing up and my internet wasn't loading fast enough. And for some reason, it gave me an incomplete list of my patrons last week. And so I talked about how, you know, if you just want to give a one-time donation, you can just sign in and then uh, wait till the money comes out of your account. And then you can unsubscribe or whatever if you want to do a one-time donation. However, that's not the case necessarily with some of the names I didn't read last week. It was just because Patreon didn't update my list. So now, this week is the complete Patreon list of my wonderful patrons. So, of course, as always, we've got Project Friday and Brendan Kellum and Kai and uh, Lucas, who has now sent me in a correction of how to say his last name. And it is Sebaios. Lucas Sebaios. So thank you, Lucas Sebaios. And I apologize for saying your name Sebalos all these weeks or Sebalos. It is Lucas Sebaios. Thanks, of course, to Lunar Baboon and Anak Sabello and Zikarax and Eric Valerio. And we've got some new donors this week. We got Girls with Tails, new donor to Beyond Synth. Thank you very much. And Terrence Thompson. Thank you, Terrence Thompson. It means a lot to me. And up to our $5 donors, of course, we've got Joe and Lando. Lando Calrissian lives on Bespin. Uh, that's not the same guy, but Joe and Lando, of course, are hosts of some cool podcasts. You should check out the Ozone Nightmare and Ozone Late Night. And thank you very much for your five dollars. Uh, I'm going to put all this money into a big hat and then uh, buy a new host of this show who will do a better job than me. Thank you, Florence Bullock. Every week, you know what I'm saying. Thank you so much for your support. I asked Florence because I know she's into wrestling, uh, and I said, if you ever played the WrestleMania games, and she said no, but once she defeated a professional wrestler at a match of Mortal Kombat. So that's pretty cool. Florence said she played a scorpion when I prodded her for more information. Joey Bergeron. Thank you very much, Joey Bergeron. You're a cool guy. You know you're a cool guy. I know you're a cool guy. I know everybody knows. Also, Roman Miranov. Roman, thank you for your donation. You're a cool guy, too. At any point, if any of you want to send in trivia about yourselves, I maintain I will read it on the show. I want to say some nice things about my donors, but I need uh, you know, I need some stuff to go on. Zergs Music. Yeah, tell me how to pronounce that, buddy. X-R-Y-Z Music. All right? How do you do it, man? How do you say it? I don't know, man, but uh, you send that in and let me know. And we got new $5 donors this week. Sebastian SW. Thank you, Sebastian, for your lovely donation. And uh, who else? And Philip. Uh-oh. Looks like a German last name. Huberger. You're going to have to help me out with this one, buddy. Philip 
Q-Burger is how I'm going to say it right now until I am corrected. I know that's wrong. If it's like a Germanic last name, maybe it's like Q-Burger or something like that. <laughs> listen, I like burgers. You know me. Uh, hamburgers are the best food. Anyways, listen, thank you for your donation, buddy. It means a lot to me and Sebastian. New $5 donors this month. And, of course, we've got our wonderful $10 donors, who I'm still trying to figure out some sort of theme song for you guys. Um, I'm going to talk to Hoo-Ha about that. Maybe he can make me a little sound effect or something. But, of course, Trevor, Resnick, and Jake Last, my very, very special $10 donors. I should call you guys... I should have a name for you. Give me a week to think of one. I'll think of something good. You guys are awesome, all right? All the support means a lot to me. And of course, um, if we can reach some of those goals, we can start uh, making this show even better than it already is, which means making it kind of okay. (laughs) It's a sliding scale into shit. But uh, listen, guys, thank you so much for your donation. Of course, all my uh, donors uh, have uh, private access to uh, patron stuff on Patreon. So, for example, when I post new videos to the Beyond Synth page, I will post them first uh, privately on Patreon. And so those people get a sneak peek at the stuff that's upcoming. And my $5 and over donors also get access to the shows early. So once the shows air on uh, Power 85, they uh, go on soundcloud on mondays for everyone to listen to and download if you're a five dollar donor you get those episodes uh directly after they air or shortly after they air so you can listen to them over the weekend before everybody else and that's that man so let's listen to another track this is a song by dynatron dynatron is awesome and this track is called towards the island universe
And that was Dinotron with the track Towards the Island Universe. Dinotron makes really cool music. His newest album, Eternus, is wicked, and you should check it out because there's lots of cool tracks on there. Of course, Beyond Synth airs every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Power 85. Power 85. Dot com. Remember that, because Power 85 is 24 hours a day synthwave music. And a few times a week, there's a few shows, like this one, and also Project Friday on Friday nights. And uh, Power 85 is pretty cool, man. I was uh, building Lego. All right, I've got a big pile of Lego, and I decided to do an experiment. I downloaded Lego instruction PDFs off the internet, and I got the Millennium Falcon. I don't have the Millennium Falcon kit. I just literally just have bins of loose Lego. But I was curious to see if I could actually replicate as close as I could the Millennium Falcon out of Lego using the bits that I had. And it was a, an interesting, fun sort of experiment to do if you're into Lego because you have to sort of improvise, right? Like there's certain pieces that can perform a similar function, uh, but they're not the exact same piece. And then when you make that adjustment, you have to make all these other adjustments to accommodate your uh, thing. Anyway. Anyways, I'm proud of my Millennium Falcon. It's a little different, obviously, than the uh, than the main one. And once I got finished the core shape of the Millennium Falcon, I added my own details to it, as opposed to the ones that they had in the instructions. But it looks like a Millennium Falcon. Uh, I added a few cannons on the side and stuff. This is the nerdiest thing I've ever... <laughs> I'm a nerd, by the way. <laughs> In case it wasn't clear before, I just told you a story about how I built the Millennium Falcon out of Lego myself, and maybe I'll post a picture on the Beyond Synth Facebook page. Speaking of which, if you haven't yet, checked out the Beyond Synth Facebook because I did post a video preview of an upcoming thing, so it's another little video teaser of some stuff that's going to be coming up on Beyond Synth. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't watched it, but it involves me and a cool synth waver whose music I really like who uh, stopped by the city uh, during a music tour he was on and uh, we did an in-studio interview and it's uh, fun, so that's cool. So listen, let's now go to my continued conversation with Makeup and Vanity Set. Hope you guys are having a lovely day and enjoy uh, the rest of the show. Bye-bye. Nope, not (laughs) bye-bye. Enjoy the interview.
And that was Makeup and Vanity Set with the track Death Laser from the album Wave Hymnal. And I'm continuing my chat with Makeup and Vanity Set Matthew Pusty from last week. So, uh... Talk to me about Wave Hymnal. Wave Hymnal is like the product of I had finished Wilderness and I had been making a ton of just super digital music, just very like abrasive electronic music. And I was, I think, I can't remember exactly why I was doing that. I was just sort of, I write music all the time, so I have tons and tons of music all the time, but I'm, I think I was just trying to be busy and I was writing a bunch of stuff and I knew I was about to go to um, PAX. I was going to PAX in Seattle. So I wrote a bunch of music to play live because I was going to play a couple shows while I was out there. The tracks that I started with were Stalker, Wave Hymnal, and Death Laser. Those three tracks kind of came very quickly. Remember I went out there and played the show and came back and I just had all this music kind of laying around. And while I was in the middle of Wilderness, Data Airlines reached out to me. They wanted me to do a remix for Dub Mood and I was like, I just, I really don't have time. I think I was kind of a jerk to him in the email. I was, <laughs> I didn't mean to. I was just sort of like, I think I just like blew him off or was just kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm busy. I have a lot of stuff going on. Because I was like in a place where I was trying to finish that record and it was just really difficult. And to his credit, he, they like hung in there. And I think literally like a year later, he emailed me and was like, hey, you know, we've got another release coming for Trey Frey and it would be awesome if you did a remix. And also, you know, if you want to do, if you'd ever want to release anything with us, you know, we'd be into that. And so I had all these tracks and they were super digital and I didn't feel like they fit Telefuture. I felt like the stuff I was doing with Telefuture was a certain way and I felt like Wave Hymnal was a different thing. And so I just collected all the tracks and I sent it to him and he was into it and the record became Wave Hymnal. And I was like super stoked about it because first of all, Data Airlines is great. Steve at Telefuture, he and I talked about it. He was cool with it because Steve's amazing. You know, he super respects Data Airlines and so, you know, I sent him the music and then they were like, you know, we're going to get, Trey's going to do a remix and Dub Mood kind of helped out with that and then Kovax, who's like, I mean, shoot, I was a Kovax fan. I mean, back in the days of, like, Impulse Tracker and getting into, like, that mod community, the early days of, like, Blipfest and stuff like that. And so I was stoked that he uh, he got in on that and was able to do a remix. I thought that was, like, the greatest thing ever. So that was a really, that was a really special release for me because it was just, it was a new experience. It was a different label. And, um, and then again, just, you know, being remixed by people that you just really love and adore was pretty cool so you were playing a show at pax i played so i went out there to kind of hook up with the star mazer people i don't know if you know yes, of yeah, them yeah. so i'm involved in star mazer and i'm actually scoring a film for don thackeray who's kind of the mastermind of that whole animal so i went out there to kind of meet him and hang out and i played a show related to star mazer that are actually arcade high was at that and um got to meet all those guys and it was a cool show it was a ton of fun I played that and then I played and then Proto Men were out there to play PAX and so I ended up playing a show I jumped on a show with them it was the craziest show ever it was in a like metal venue and the guy who ran sound plays guitar for KMFDM and it was just super ridiculous it was like everybody <laughs> in that place was like covered in tattoos and like looked like they were about to shank you like they were straight out of Oz or something and like <laughs> but it was amazing like everybody was super nice and that was like one of those shows where um, 
I don't know, it's just like the best possible thing you could hope for. It was super rad. It was a ton of fun. The kids were really into it. Um, I met a ton of people. The Brigador guys came out. There's a, an indie game called Strafe. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. They came out and uh, they were awesome. Super pumped about their game. And then um, I opened the show and then Bit Brigade played. And Bit Brigade is a fantastic band. Just super good. Hella nerdy but super awesome. And uh, I think the drummer of that band is like the drummer for Maserati, which is another, like it's just, it was just like a perfect meld of music that like my brain was just like blown completely from just being in the, in that room and just witnessing that. So it was pretty yeah, rad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk to me about the track, uh, the titular track wave hymnal off wave hymnal. <laughs> so wave hymnal is like a sister track to polyhymnal, which is the first track on wilderness. I was like, I'm going to make a track around the general arpeggiation of this. That is just going to like lay waste. Like I just wanted to be super powerful and really in your face and crazy. And, um, yeah, that's where that's what, that was basically the genesis of that. It was just like I knew I was going to play packs, so I wanted to have the tracks sort of have a bit of an eight bit flavor at the end. So a lot of those tracks have like moments in it that are sort of that I don't know what you call the data airlines like post chip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just had this kind of vibe to it, you know. I was like, I'm super big fan of things like Danger. Obviously, is is amazing, and so like just trying to get kind of marry that feeling of like heavy drums, heavy electro, little you know, a little bit of eight bit thrown in and just heavy kind of wave station style synthesis you know where it's like just it has that really kind of cold vibe to it where the synths are all just really shrill and crazy and just kind of fm based well how about we listen to it right now uh this is wave hymnal by makeup and vanity set Let's <laughs> go. 
And that was Wave Hymnal by Makeup and Vanity Set. And I'm joined today by Makeup and Vanity Set. <laughs> and uh, we're going to get to the soundtrack you did for the video game uh, Brigador. But I was wondering, I-, I mean, like with all the music you're making, if you even have time to game, you sound so busy. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, um, I've been playing Doom a lot. Which has been an experience. How is that? Do you mean the new one? Yeah, the new one. I like it. I'm into it. I wasn't going to buy it, and then I caved to nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I do that a lot. Yeah, and so I had to, like, I just had to do it. But I'm like, if I had to really pick, if I had the time to actually, like, Doom is more successful with me and my schedule because I can just kind of run and gun. Yes. But, like, uh, if I had all the time in the world to do this stuff, I would probably be reaching for something like Fallout. Um, I have Fallout 4, but I sadly have not. I don't think I've even scratched the surface on that game. And Fallout 3 is one of my all-time favorite games. Just love that thing to death. Mm -hmm. Never got super into New Vegas, but I was like, when 4 came out, I bought it right away. And I I had a similar reaction to it that I had to Skyrim, where I was like, I started it, and I was like, this is the biggest game ever. (laughs) And I don't have even enough time to even look at the map of this game like that's how big this game is yeah i wonder too for me if it's like just the timing my son was just kind of born so skyrim came out in 2011 like november so he was still like a baby and i put in hundreds of hours into skyrim yeah because he was at the age where he was just laying on a bed you know what i mean like i could game and like he could just sit in my arms and i could game yeah you could just chill and it was awesome so i love skyrim i love the bethesda games but I, for me, it's always, I lean more fantasy than post-apocalypse. Sure. But I appreciate that they are the same game. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like it's the same engine. I love Doom because, um... I was a huge fan of Rage. I don't know why. Rage... Rage was... You know, Rage, I liked the way it played. It was smooth. Exactly. Like, I think it had... Rage was a game that, on the surface, I should have hated, but I really liked it. It was a ton of fun. I love that you could do the split-screen two-player. I'm a huge split-screen I I don't understand. Like, I got a PS4, and it was like... There'd be games, and they're like, yeah, multiplayer, and it's like multiplayer on a internet connection. Like, there's no games any t- anymore where you play head-to-head in the same room. I wish I knew how to code, because I can't. But I am so compelled. Anyone who listens to this knows I talk about GoldenEye more than I should. <laughs> I love yeah. GoldenEye. Very specifically, I, I've been analyzing that game. For, I guess, what, 17 years or something? Because <laughs> I question these things in myself. I go, what is it about this that I love so much? Like, wh- why? Like, I'm not an idiot. If something yeah. better came along, I would go to that thing. Yeah. So I know there's something in here, in the DNA of this thing that's compelling to me that new experiences aren't delivering. It's the music. It's a few things. <laughs> it, music is part of it, but it's... Yeah. Uh, what it is, is essentially, because everyone has this idea that... First-person shooters have just gotten better. Yeah. Like, the graphics are better, the control is better, the physics, the AI, all this shit, which is true. So there's this idea that GoldenEye is archaic because everything's been improved since then. But the thing is, first-person shooters changed. So Call of Duty, and I will buy them because I'm just like, when is going to be the game that the first-person shooter that gives me the same feeling I got playing GoldenEye? Sure. And... The thing is, GoldenEye, obviously the split screen was a huge part of it, but also because GoldenEye was essentially a party game, and Call of Duty is competitive. You're exactly right. 
I agree with you 100%. It's that fucking phrasing that it took me 15 years to figure out because I'm like, I say I like first-person shooters, but the thing about Goldeneye, first of all, you've got this really liberal auto-aim, which a hardcore person hates, right? You hate that because, you know, you want to get these pixel-perfect headshots. But what that allows for is the ability for everyone to have fun playing it because you just run in a room and you also feel like an action hero from a movie because that's what they do in movies. They run in the room with an Uzi and fire wildly and the fucking bad guys, all their fucking the squibs go off in their shirts and they fly away. And you don't get that experience when you're playing Call of Duty because it's very focused on the competitive aspect. It has to be pixel perfect or else people are going to complain that there's it's broken. Yeah. And so I'm. it's one of my missions to get it made. And I'm not a fucking composer, but I started like designing a trailer for one. Yeah. I was using Ogre's music and I was starting to learn 3D so I could design a trailer to like do like a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. I think you nailed it though. I really do. I think that you're exactly right because nobody's going to go to a party. You're not going to have a bunch of people over and put on Call of Duty. Well, you can't. The, the thing about Call of Duty is it's not fun unless you're good at it. Yeah. The thing about GoldenEye was the game itself was accessible, and now the term party game is synonymous with cartoon characters on like a you know fictional game board or whatever, or something Nintendo's making. And this idea of a party game that's kind of fun for adults that you know has violence that's a first person shooter it doesn't fucking exist (laughs) and I want that to exist again like to take the fundamental visuals of like 80s and 90s action films yeah so like use that as the inspiration for the visual style for the weapons because I'm not a gun nut guy like I love first person shooters yeah but the idea of the um, just the gung-ho-ness yeah well it's like it's that but it's also it's not my fantasy thing and also the guns there's like there's like hundreds of them and they all have all these multitudes of customization options but that's not fun like it's not fun it's a spreadsheet yeah you know it's like oh you put fucking this thing on you get two points off accuracy and then you get three points on range and it's like you just want to play yeah and what you're saying about doom is that exact thing like i want the game to exist that you power it on you put the game in the machine and you're playing within a few minutes and you know, there is, you know, stat tracking and there is sort of things that keep you in the game and keep your character leveling or whatever. But essentially, the game itself is easy, accessible, and you can just kind of turn it on and play. And if you have buddies over to do split screen, which, you know, as a parent, I don't have that opportunity as much anymore. Yeah. The idea of playing a video game is my poker night. Yeah. You know, just like some people like, yeah, like, let's fucking get together and play cards and fucking drink. I also say video games would be a part of that. Hey, let's go into the fucking other room and play Goldeneye for an hour. Sure. Shoot, man. Double dribble. And then- <laughs> Remember that? I had like the little voice thing in the beginning. I was like, double dribble. <laughs> double dribble. All right. Before I keep talking about my video game idea for another 10 hours, we should listen to a track. So here is a song from the Brigador soundtrack. This is There Is No Law Here by Makeup and Vanity Set.
That was There Is No Law Here by Makeup and Vanity Set from the Brigador Game Soundtrack. And I'm here with Makeup and Vanity Set right now. And um, the whole soundtrack to this game is awesome. And it makes me happy that there's these indie games coming out now that really care about uh, the music and, and the atmosphere of the games. Well, see, that's what I love about indie games. Because I think that a company like EA or, you know, they're not really in the business of, they're not doing anything bad, but they're not really in the business of, like, particularly caring. You know, they're just trying to turn <laughs> out a, they're trying to turn out a product that right. works and mm-hmm. sells, you know... 50 million copies and even even in the case of like something like Bethesda and, and id you know they're looking at it and they're going well we want to crank something out that's good that people are going to like you know doom definitely fires on all cylinders it panders to all of the sort of nostalgia people like me panders to the people of the new the new kind of school of it and the the speed of it because the game is just super fast because mm-hmm. I came out of the same kind of deal with like quake you know and even in quake there were people that would get on there that were just like that would smoke you and were really really good I was never one of those people but like it was a game that I could go online and I love to play you would love to go online and like you know do a death match with like a big room full of people and it was fun you know and every once in a while you go on a run and you'd like live for a while and you wouldn't get smoked every five seconds but <laughs> it was a community thing and I feel like by the time I had like a PS3 and I was playing like Call of Duty or whatever and you'd like log in and play online you didn't really get a strong sense of community well I mean, the opposite <laughs> you get uh, little 12 year olds yeah, especially if it's like a 12 year old like cussing you out through (laughs) it's not the same experience and I think a lot of it had to do I think a lot of it for people that are you know in their 30s or whatever they look back on it and they're like well you know it's a it's an age thing it's this feel of it it's the graphics the way the textures are it's the crappy sound Mm. when you play Goldeneye and and you turn it on and it loads with that like reverse symbol like it's like yeah. that crazy. It's 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 perfect. It's perfect. Yes. Like you can't screw. And it's awesome. I mean, if you go on to like Apple Music and you listen to the actual score from GoldenEye, like all those sounds are in the actual score. And every time I hear it, I'm like, this is amazing. Like I just want to make a whole record that sounds like GoldenEye. Like that would be a dream. But I think that like it's such a like perfect meld of like. It's crappy, but it's fun. And just like you said, everybody's on an equal playing field. You know, they're... It's interesting, too, because that I watched as a nerdy thing. I watched the one of those uh, game developer things where they do the postmortems. Yeah. Uh, you know, where the producers talk about the making of. And so I watched the producers talk about the making of GoldenEye. And it's actually really interesting because some of the fun actually comes from the fact that the characters look kind of silly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's actually part of the fun. Yeah. Uh, that they have these square heads and, and things like this. So it's interesting how all that stuff kind of goes together. Because for me now, of course, I understand that some of it is nostalgia. And the one thing that I guess we'll never have again is that idea of this sort of experience, this communal experience, this this party game and its particular genre. And also it being like the game. Because GoldenEye was the game. Yeah. On top of it being all these things, it was also like, that was it. Like, that was the cool party game to play for, you know, those years. Yeah. This is why I will play Call of Duty games, but I, honestly, the last, like, four have been bad. Like, I don't yeah, like I've been, them. I've been pretty checked out on them. I'll get them only because I want to see what the split-screen options are like. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll play it and be like, oh, I don't like the sound design in this game. I really don't like the sound design in new Call of Duty games. Like, the guns are trying to be realistic, so they don't sound like you want them to sound. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like a movie. You know, you want big fucking punchy bangs and fucking cool. I think the last Call of Duty game that I really liked was the World War II one that came out on Wii. Was that Call of Duty or was that Medal of Honor? I can't remember. Because I think it was Medal of Honor. Man, I'm gonna have to look that up. I'm pretty sure it was a Call of Duty, but it was awesome because it... And, and the reason I liked it was because the graphics were still pretty shit, but you had the functionality of the Wii remote was so new mm-hmm. that it was like, you know, I think you had to like chuck the controller, do like the throw motion, or like throw a grenade. Right. The reason why I thought it was Medal of Honor was because I believe Medal of Honor was the first first-person shooter on Wii to sort of do the controls semi-well. Yeah. Yeah, the, no, the, the controls were terrible. I remember yeah, that. I think, but it was... Yeah, Medal of Honor, I bought that one because of the reviews said, hey, this one actually kind of works right. Whereas, like, <laughs> Call of Duty had sort of this big bounding box where it, you really hurt your wrist trying to do it. <laughs> well, uh, how about we listen to another track? Uh, this one is called Great Leader Has Fallen by Makeup and Vanity Set.
And that was Makeup and Vanity set and the track Great Leader Has Fallen. And I'm here with Makeup and Vanity set. So uh, you mentioned before about packs. So what was some of the uh, the other stuff that went on there? It's kind of crazy. Like I w- so I went to PAX, right? And I went out there to meet Don and his team. And then I went out there to meet Brigador, those guys. At that point, I had written a ton of music for Brigador. And I remember I put in my headphones and I walked through the PAX hall. There's like 30,000 people at this thing, right? And you're walking through and there's like developers there. Like I remember the developer for uh, Mad Max was there and they had this giant display. Like it felt like there was like 50 flat screens around and all these kids with wireless headphones and they're all just standing around like zombies. And I remember I just was walking through there and I'm listening to like, I don't remember, I was listening to something crazy. I'm like walking through there and it's just sort of like taking it all in. And then you get over to like the mega booth for the indie games and you're literally watching these guys that have their game set up on this tiny little TV and it's the guys like the people you're walking like these are the developers that actually work these aren't paid people wearing a Mad Max t-shirt these are the developers that made the game you mean those beautiful women aren't the ones who make the games <laughs> exactly and so like <laughs> they're and and they're literally standing it's like when you go to the, the carnival right and there's a guy telling you to step right up it's like they're literally pulling people out of the crowd saying I made this game with my own blood sweat and tears this thing is this thing I'm passionate about I made this I created it and I want to show it to you. And you'd watch kids stand there and play the game while they had an interaction and they talked. And it was like a beautiful thing. It was like from a creative standpoint, you cannot ask for something stronger than that. And I think that I I kind of had a somewhat of an understanding of what the indie game community was, but I really understood it so much deeper after going to PAX because having getting to witness that and see them hawk their game to these people. And you know, you'd have people come up and play it and be like, this isn't for me. And they'd kind of walk away. They'd have people come up and you'd like show it to them and you'd see them start to kind of get the hang of it and like start to kind of understand what they were doing. And they're like, yeah, man, this is really cool. And like, it was just extremely satisfying. And I wasn't even the developer. I'm just standing in the back like the guy that wrote the, the bass music that's playing underneath or whatever. Like, <laughs> like I'm just, you know, I'm just nobody. I'm just standing there watching it. And like, it was really cool. And it was really cool to kind of walk around and see these other games that people are developing and to know that these people are like essentially leveraging everything that they have to do this. Yeah. yeah. And because they believe in it. And it was, it was super cool. It was a super cool experience. Cool. Well, uh, let's check out another song from the soundtrack quickly. Uh, this is Fatal Flaw. By Makeup and Vanity Set. We'll be right back. 
And that was Fatal Flaw by Makeup and Vanity Set. You should just have like a, get the, like the robot voice from the computer and just be oh, yeah. like, song here. <laughs> this was another track from Makeup and Vanity Set. <laughs> so what was your uh, briefing going into doing the Brigador soundtrack? So Brigador was a, I have a friend, Davis, who was in New York City, writes for a magazine called Killscreen. And he went to the Game Developers Conference at GDC and the story that was told to me was he was in line to buy pizza. There was, no, I think it was free pizza. There was a line for free pizza and he was drunk and everyone in the line was pretty much drunk. In front of him, there was a guy with a backpack and he was showing this game that he made with his brother to another guy, literally on a laptop out of his backpack. Davis is kind of eavesdropping on this conversation uh, rudely in line for pizza while drunk. And he's like, I like this. I like this game. I write for Kill Screen. I want to like write about your game. And um, he kept running into him. And so finally he kind of sits down with him and he is asking him questions. He's going to write an article. And uh, he's asking questions. So, you know, uh, do you, are you guys have a publisher? Do you guys have a lawyer? Who's writing the music? And they're like, well, we don't have music yet. And he says, so what, what kind of music do you want for this game? And he said, well, we don't want video game music. We don't want it to be just sort of the standard bearing kind of video game thing. They were like, really? We just want it to sound like John Carpenter. And Davis was like, I know a guy. And <laughs> put him in touch with me. And so they emailed me and they were like, we, we got your information through Davis and we'd be curious we like we listen to your stuff online and we're into it and would you want to write us a demo kind of as a trial run and so they sent me a brief kind of synopsis of the game that there's a bunch of factions the story of the colony and um, you know just how all that stuff works and what the game's about and I made a demo and sent it to them and the demo eventually became the theme for the game and um, at the time it was me and another guy that we were going to kind of co-compose and I had never scored a game before and was honestly a little terrified of it the other guy didn't work out for whatever reason and um, I got the gig and so it was just all me and so they I literally spent the summer so my wife and I had just had our daughter and um, my wife was like you have to do this this is great this is going to be awesome and so she would literally go outside and like mow the lawn so that I could like work on this game which was like <laughs> just I, it makes me sound horrible but it's like a testament to my wife being awesome she went outside and like did things so that I could like focus on doing it it's so, like I spent the whole summer and wrote all this music it was the dream gig I kept sending them stuff and Hugh and Jack the main guys and uh, the brothers Monahan of Stellar Jockeys they were like this is great send us more I don't think they ever critiqued anything I think the only thing I ever did was like I, I some of the tracks had uh, like a vinyl crackle in them I'm a fan of making the, the track sound a little dirtier <laughs> and they were like yeah we don't we don't like this vinyl crackle get this vinyl out of here and so that was their only <laughs> that was like their only complaint but it was an awesome experience and meeting them at PAX was awesome I just kind of hung around them and annoyed them probably but uh they are super awesome dudes and I hope I really hope that they blow up and become like EA and keep making games and I just keep scoring them because that would be rad I'd say that Brigador is a uh, isometric uh, vehicle action game with a retro style that functions much like a roguelike yeah you're much more adept at, at describing <laughs> games than I am 
but that's accurate. That's good. That's good. And they said it. And I had I had an early build of it before. Like it was an early access in Steam, and they had greenlit. And I gotta get Steam. Steam's awesome. Yeah, like someone actually sent me a demo of a game, but like I need to be on Steam to do it. Yeah. And I haven't created my Steam account yet. You should do that. This is gonna be great because if you know people send me music, if I get to a point where people start sending me games, man, that's the fucking. <laughs> I could probably I'll I'll see what I can do about Brigador. Maybe I can get you hooked up on something with that. But the uh, they were awesome. They were super great to work with. They gave me early access to the game, so I was playing it and kind of getting a feel for it. And I think ultimately the idea was how do we make the tracks action, kind of very action-oriented? How do we make them have like a really good forward momentum? The songs had to be somewhat repetitive, but had to also sort of keep being interesting. They couldn't just be straight like loops or anything. Mm -hmm. I think I ended up with like two hours of music for the game. We wrote... What was just released was the uh, volume one of that. So these tracks are sort of the action-packed, sort of like you're in your mech and you're blowing up people's houses and stepping on people and going nuts. And volume two is the sort of hardcore carpenter synth version of the soundtrack. And the tracks are way longer and way more atmospheric. And, you know, uh, Carpenter was a huge touchstone for that. The music from uh, Terminator, really the original Terminator. Oh, yeah. That was a huge touchstone. Just lots of, like, bass arpeggiation and trying really hard to sort of... I mean, when they sent me the original synopsis, you know, they were talking about the different factions, and they were like, well, there's these guys, and these guys, the Loyalists, and, you know, the Spacers, and they were like, and there's these guys called the Corvids, and they're like uh, the rogue kind of motorcycle gang. Like, they'd be like the... And I kept picturing in my head, like, Akira, I kept thinking, like, you know, the idea of, like, this kind of future... I don't know, over the years, my music has sort of steadily been earmarked as being cyberpunk music. You know, I'm okay with that. I'm a huge William Gibson fan. I love William Gibson. I love that vibe of things. And, and I think this game really landed there very nicely. It was sort of like a, you know, a desolate future. It was, like, dystopia, but it was also, like, war-based, and it had, uh, you know, the game is heavily like about modifying things and doing different configurations of your mech and your weapons and they designed the game in a way that could be heavily modded and it was a really fascinating experience uh, from start to finish well, that's cool yeah man yeah yeah well, well speaking of start to finish let's listen to a track from start to finish <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, here's another track from Brigador this is Nexus by Makeup and Vanity Set
And that was Nexus by Makeup and Vanity Set. And we are chatting right now. So we can probably start winding this thing down. Okay. But we should probably talk about Hit TV. Yeah, sure. And then we can sort of come to a, a natural conclusion here. Okay. So talk to me about Hit TV. <laughs> <laughs> Hit TV happened mainly I was I was at PAX and I got an email from a guy named uh, Stefan Alfasi and he's a producer He's the creator of Record Maker Records, which is the label that signed Kavinsky and Air and Sebastian Tellier and a bunch of really amazing people. Never heard of them. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> he uh, he emailed me and he said, hey, I'm producing a film. It's for a director. His name's Simon Kesh. And it's set sort of in, in a weird alternate 80s. And he is really into your music and he would like to talk to you. And it was really that sort of vague. And weird. It was one of those things where he, it felt like he had a lot of handlers. It was like, well, we're going to set up a time that he can call you. Is this time okay? And then another person would contact me. I was like, I was like, who is this guy? You know, like, and, um, <laughs> it was all just him. Yeah. So, so finally he and I talk, we connect and, um, Saman is crazy. He's like a madman. He's like super animated, super just hyperactive. His brain is like, a mile a minute but he and I just like just in the same way that that Anthony and I did uh, we just connected right off the bat and I felt very strongly that, uh, again, this is a guy that has extreme vision and just uh, really had a thing in mind and wanted to do it and had some serious people behind him. And he's another guy who's sort of up and coming, has a lot of features in pre-production right now, and he's, you know, he's just doing big things. And uh, it was really a no-brainer. It was like, a, you know, I really wanted to work with him. Even before anything was shot, he, he and I would talk a lot, and I actually ended up making about a half hour of music and sent it to him just without any film, just off of he had a really strong production bible he had a lot of kind of just mood book kind of stuff where he'd send me images and things that he thought really felt tied to that world and what was different about working on hit tv than other films i've worked on was he had a really strong idea of what he wanted the world to be it was important for him to define the world of that film before shooting the film even to the degree that there were things he had sort of defined that wouldn't even be in the film and he had a strong vision in terms of later on, you know, hopefully we, we shoot the film and we take it out and we show it to people and they want to make a feature out of it. Working on Hit TV was definitely very time consuming. A lot of back and forth with Saman. Saman was the kind of guy who knows what he wants. He's one of those guys who like knows it when he hears it. So he wants to throw everything that he possibly can at the wall to see what sticks. So you end up doing like a lot of stuff. Right. And I mean, we went a lot of different directions. They screened the film for the first time in a rough version uh, at South by Southwest. And even after that, we were to a place where it felt kind of like maybe we were making some headway and he came back and said, nope, watch it with an audience and realized that there was a lot of things that are actually wrong with it and I want to change things. And he did. And we did. And we, um, you know, the music, we skewed a little darker. You know, that was a really cool experience because it was just like you know when you're talking to a director and they're like well i want it to feel more alien you know you're like what does that mean <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and it's like with him it was the same kind of deal it was like uh you know i need it to sound less whiny and it's like okay well what's what does whiny mean you know and it's kind of like figuring out where his brain was figuring out how he sees things he sees things as a as a director as a as a guy who wants to accomplish x y and z with his film and he was very minded what he wanted created 
creatively, what he wanted commercially, what he wanted, and, and it was like he was he was probably the most methodical and mechanical, like as far as the way that his brain worked and then what he knew, what he needed, and um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that my I have unlimited text for good reason because I think I probably got like <laughs> 600 texts from him through that process, but it was <laughs> but it was totally worth it. I feel like the end result, the, where it landed as a film, and then also like I mean the idea that he had for the TV to kind of be the Greek chorus and like it just came together very well it was a, the devices that he had going on in that film were really really solid and the music you know when we finished when I finished putting together the record I feel like the music again sort of landed in a place that felt like a very complete statement it was like this is the world that we created I think obviously Vangelis Blade Runner was a huge touchstone in assembling that record it wasn't it didn't sound like that record but it I wanted to make something that was like literally like a cacophony of sound I wanted wanted it to be the world that Saman was trying to create. I wanted to do that and then some. And so I created, you know, there's Foley on the record and tracks in the record that are not in the film. The total idea was to create something that was like a, almost like a sister piece to, to Saman's movie. So you could watch the film and listen to the record and you get like a, even a bigger, kind of a bigger impression is made, you know? And to his credit, he was super cool with that. He and, and Stefan were both really into that idea and um, were super easy to work with in that regard. They didn't really turn any screws to me as far as sometimes you get involved in freelance work where they're like well I own this or I control this and I, I'm not gonna I don't want you to do this or I want you need to do it that way and you know I got with Casper and Casper took a still from the film and just I thought really nailed it out of the park and the artwork and made something really dark I think the the main touchstone for me for that film was uh, Thief Michael Mann's uh, mm-hmm. heist film with uh, James Caan Tangerine Dream score I just really just really wanted to respond to the material and have it be sufficiently dark and a little menacing and uh, a little dangerous and I thought that I really felt that's what Tangerine Dream did with that film and and when you watch it you know it's early man so it's not really like the flashy man yet it has a has a real (laughs) it has a real grittiness to it but I mean you watch that movie and it's like that scene in the beginning with uh, James Caan and he goes into that guy's office telling him he, he wants his money and he threatens him and it's it's terrifying you know and you know when you hear the kind of arpeggiation and all the kind of like really hard synthesis the tangerine dream did for the film it's like i mean i love tangerine dream i love that those guys were able to craft some really iconic film music in the loosest possible way you hear that stuff and it lives on its own it doesn't really feel like it's made to sort of mimic and follow the film you know it's not like it's made to follow the cuts of the film it's not like John Williams cueing the French horns for Star Wars it's like they made this thing that's its own living and breathing kind of animal right and to man's credit he was a guy who understood music videos before music videos were huge and like he understood the idea of using pop music in a way in his films that augmented the film not the other way around right and i thought that was that was always really fascinating to me yeah i can see that now that you mention it how like lots of your albums do sort of they like they stand on their own as almost like companion pieces to the things you're scoring and with that said we should probably actually listen to uh, a track from the hit tv uh soundtrack so this is running by makeup and vanity set Thank you. 
And that was Running by Makeup and Vanities set from the Hit TV soundtrack. And uh, speaking of Hit TV, I mean, if there was any video that I've seen that I would define as visual synthwave, I think that that's totally what this short film is. It's that look, right? Like just the fucking yeah. the neon and the the way people look and even like the mask that the one dude wears and stuff yeah. like the uh, but it's definitely pretty creepy and uh, hardcore. His vision was very much like he wanted to create something that was that didn't just appeal to the flashy pastiche of the 80s. I know it's easy to look at the film and say, well, you know, it has all the neon and it looks that way, but I think if you look at the kind of deeper idea going on there, it's like the wife is part of the sort of she works with him they kill people it's like a syndicate of people that kill people based on an online like or a tv dating show the whole thing is pretty sinister you know and i and when i watched it i the vibe that i got from it i feel like there's a lot of filmmaking that happens now that's 80s-esque and i mean this not necessarily in terms of like features like things like drive just you see a lot of stuff online and people make things and they always kind of get hunkered down by the references or the nostalgia factor you're right Uh, i find this and this is the thing that kind of bugs me about a lot of the 80s stuff that i see you know like the whenever i say i like 80s and people oh you know they send me comedy skits and things like this is everything is a pastiche yeah right so uh you know kung fury yeah it's a lot of fun but it's like you know it's a past it's making fun right then there's like key and peel skits and there's that fucking moonbeam city cartoon (laughs) and stuff and it's all jokes and i know for me personally like when i was making circuit and breaker and when i still really do want to focus on that project at some point part of me was what I loved about the 80s stuff was that it wasn't ironic and I want to make a show that literally it's going to be a guy in a fucking foam robot suit but I want to have dramatic scenes uh, and I want to play them straight, and I don't. Ca- and I understand that someone could watch it and go, "Is this guy serious? Like, it's actually <laughs> like playing like heartfelt fucking sad music, and he's having like a heart to heart with a fucking his best robot friend." I'm the kind of guy like I'll watch Real Genius all day long if I could. You know, I love that <laughs> film, but at the same time, you know, I was born in '82, and I have memories from the '80s, and I'm like, I think. When I look back on it now, it's like the 80s were a dark period. There's like threat of the Cold War. You have the AIDS crisis. You have things like the Challenger disaster. You have pop culture is just raging. You know, you have music, you have MTV, you have films especially where like I don't think you can point to another era where the films were more rooted deeply in fantasy than the 1980s and I think that the reason for that is you know the culture that was surrounding the world at that time was so tricky that people needed to escape but that the key to me is like it's unironic fantasy it yeah exactly it's unironic because now everything is meta And everything has to be like a response to something or a comment on something or a comment within a comment on something. (laughs) Look, I love that kind of stuff. You know, if I watch like Community and it's just like, oh, this is funny how clever this is and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, what I love about 80s stuff and what I hope to be able to do at some point in in creating something is that the unironic part is a really big part of it because all the cartoons I watched, they weren't like... You know, oh, there's jokes for the adults and there's jokes for this and that. It's literally like, it's it's like a guy, robots who turn into fucking cars 
and there's nothing else. It's literally robots that turn into cars, and they got a little buddy, and they fight other robots that turn into planes, and that's it. And whenever people try and justify those ideas, like if they complain about Michael Bay, what he does to Transformers, I don't like those movies. I like the cartoon because they're about robots, and yeah. the movies aren't. The, ro- yeah. the movies are about people, and there happen to be robots there, and the robots aren't characters. They're like... Uh, quote machines yeah. like when people say oh it's, it's cool that Peter Cullen is the voice of Optimus Prime like yeah but he's not a character like he just walks in the room and goes like one shall stand and you're like <laughs> oh, okay but yeah. he's not saying a thing that a character would say he's like delivering poster quotes you know yeah it's, it's too much wink wink and to me it's like what I love was just that these, these things in my childhood in the movies and stuff they were so matter of fact like back to the future it's just matter of fact there's no there's no weird wink or joke about why is this boy friends with this old man scientist he just is and the scientist has a time machine and that's that you know i mean if if you think about it and i love back to the future i think as the sequels kind of raged on i think it gets a little bit murkier but why don't part one is special and that's part two will always have a special place in my heart too but i think like the first back to the future movie is like the greatest episode of the twilight zone that didn't exist (laughs) i mean it's it's perfect it is paced perfectly i mean it just it just works it's one of the yeah it's one of the best yeah films i feel the same way about et you know like you watch et et is a sad movie Mm. et and it's funny because like et on the face of it you're like ah, it's a movie about a little alien but it's like no it's really not it's a movie about a kid going through his family's divorce and it's sad like it's a pretty sad movie it's like mm-hmm. he gets to the end and the alien goes away and he's like essentially the message is like don't give up hope like you're gonna be okay you know and that last scene where he like kind of takes off and Elliot's there in his like little red hoodie it's like that's genius mm-hmm. Like, that's a genius-level filmmaking, what they did. And I think the reason it did so well is because so many people were like, man, like, this really hits me. It hits me hard. And it's like, you it's pretty rare nowadays that you go to a movie that, A, is an original idea, and B, hits you emotionally like that, where you're just like, man, I just really... For me now, I find the actual movie-making process has become sort of more competent, like the process, mm-hmm. but the movies I'm less connected with. But listen, I feel another rant coming on, so let's (laughs) listen to another track from Hit TV. Uh, This is Julia by Makeup and Vanity Set. We got Stephanie Mills, and she's going to respect the power of love. And that's just going to be the beginning of a 30-minute commercial-free music suite. We've got at least six strong songs.
And that was Julia by Makeup and Vanity Set. And uh, we're still chatting, and uh, we're just talking about competency in modern movies. And there's this thing that's been bugging me. You know, nerds will do this, especially when they get really worked up. Like, that was the worst movie ever. (laughs) Or, like, worst thing I've ever seen. And, like, I won't ever use those terms. Because most of the time, they're not the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, if I'm... I reserve that for a movie that is completely incompetent. You know what I mean? Like, the editing has to be bad. The sound has to be bad. The soundtrack has to be shitty. The story... You know what I mean? And what I find uh, is now that a lot of movies come out and they're just kind of there and they're fine, but they're not special. Yeah. And so when people, you know, especially in the synthwave community, right, complained about, like, the RoboCop remake or, uh, you know, other things like that, and, you know, I, I watch it and I'm like, you know... It's it's not horrible. It just doesn't need to exist, and is not special. The first RoboCop is a special film. Yeah, it's just weird, and you know, like and, and awesome. RoboCop betrayed its own mythology. The remake in the trailer. I mean, the trailer had the pull quote with uh, Michael Keaton, and he's like, you know, he asked him if the suit comes in black. Mm-hmm. And it's like that in a, in and of itself kind of sums up the general kind of malaise of either rebooting something or re- it's like you don't need to update what Verhoeven did. And in a lot of ways, I, I'd be curious to see if they have like an un kind of studio altered version of that because it sounds like making that movie was a disaster. Well, I had friends on that set. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just a case of, uh, I don't want to say anything I shouldn't, but I think it was, they didn't have an ending. It was yeah. one of those movies that like went into filming without an ending. That's always a good idea too. And they made it up and then they, so they shot one where like the movie was being filmed in Toronto so they shot it in Toronto and then decided that the ending that they shot didn't work and then they did reshoots in Vancouver to like basically have a new ending and of course it doesn't make any sense (laughs) so like when I watch the movie I'm like you know, there's this whole big thing about how ED-209s are not allowed on U.S. soil uh, and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of the film, there's just this pointless action scene out of nowhere with a bunch of ED-209s at OCP's <laughs> building. I'm like, didn't this film establish that these things aren't allowed to be here? Like, I didn't... And then Michael Keaton, for no reason, just pulls a gun on these people just so he becomes a villain with a gun that RoboCop can shoot or whatever. I forget how it happened, but it it was like... It descended pretty quickly. It was a really uncharacteristic move for Michael Keaton's character to have a gun and then point it at something. Like, it was just one of those, like, what the fuck? Like... It just it just frustrates me when so much money can be put in because look I like Hollywood like I'm not a film snob like my favorite movies are Hollywood movies sure my top ten list they're all big budget Hollywood movies yeah there is just something now about that they'll put so much money into something that doesn't have an ending or like you know you watch the behind the scenes of movies even like in the 80s that felt like sort of the tail end of like the traditional studio system where like they would shoot full on camera tests with the actor in makeup on a set just to see if they were right for the part like Blade Runner you know they're talking about like literally shooting with actors who didn't get the part they had to plan that much not just about storyboards and all that stuff like literally put a camera and light them the way and put them on a set to make sure that they were right before making a movie and now it's like all fix it in post yeah I think that it's also like the uh 
I mean, I remember working on hit TV, Saman and I had conversations about the score. Like there were places where he'd be like, I, you know, make sure that you bring out like the kind of mid range frequencies because I want to make sure that people can hear this on their iPhone. And it's like on the surface, you're kind of like feels kind of gross. Right. Mm-hmm. But I also get it. Like, I understand that like so many people are watching things on portable devices and it's just kind of a necessary evil. And it's like you, you hate to hear that somebody goes in to make a feature film without an ending. But when you people are good at their jobs and they have, you know, all these producers around them, and there's so much money because you have to keep in mind like something like RoboCop it's an intellectual property it's worth a fortune you know and so they're looking at it they're going well you know we'll cut our losses like we can go and I mean they may not have on that remake but like I think that (laughs) you know they went into that thinking we can do this and more or less they did they created a competent or depending on who you're asked but they made a competent film that did everything they needed to do I don't think studios are at all surprised when films like that don't work out. I don't think they really even care that much. I think if it's successful, great. If it's not, they're like, well, hopefully it'll just break even, you know. Especially and then, when it's gunning for that February release. Yeah, it's got it. Well, they I mean Wait. they park they park it wherever, but then they're like, you know, to them they're like, it's it's all good, you know, because we'll just put out, you know, Avengers five and make a billion dollars so we'll be okay <laughs> and i think that you know it's so i get it like i think in working in film i feel like my whole making music over the course of like however many years it's been it's like i feel like i've taken a really long path to get to being like a film composer like being a person that works because i've worked so closely with film over the last few years it's like and now i'm in a place where i'm doing a lot more freelance work and i'm also you know i have a couple films that i'm working on behind the scenes like trying to get some stuff going there and I think that's where I'd like to be I I love film and I love that relationship but it is a strange business because you have so like it's easy for me as a musician to sit in a room and have a bunch of synths and be completely self-sufficient and I can make a record and I can you know I can pass it off to Casper and he can do the art and I can get with Joey and he can we can collaborate on some visual kind of promotional stuff or make a video when you're making a feature film you have a lot of people involved and all these kind of creative hands and everybody's involved and everybody's in the same boat and you know you have to have good leadership on that kind of thing you need a good director you need good producers you need people that communicate well you need a big pile of cocaine <laughs> and you need a big pile of drugs and you need a big pile of money and yeah. you know and <laughs> i think that, leave. yeah <laughs> and i think that um you know it's it's a really delicate thing it's crazy to me how films get made at all it's like it's literally like trapping lightning in a bottle but it's like with something like robocop it's easy because it's an intellectual property that's worth money you know i mean yes I think it's just a depressing thing when it's an intellectual property that you care about. Exactly. You know, like, there's so many things, like, I selfishly, and I'll admit this, there's just some things I don't care about, franchises or or characters, or, you know, I like comic books, I like superhero movies, Mm -hmm. but there's some superheroes I care less about. So, when people say they don't like Man of Steel, Mm -hmm. it doesn't affect me as much because I'm not super connected to the character of Superman. And what I've noticed is that movie appeals to people who don't like Superman. Because whenever I talk to anybody who's like, I thought Man of Steel was all right, they also preface it by saying, 
uh, but I also don't really like Superman. <laughs> and then everyone who loves Superman hates what they've done with that character in the past two films. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Like, I appreciate it from their point of view. Say, I totally get this. If I cared about this character, I would feel the way you feel. I just personally don't. Yeah. So I like RoboCop, but I like Peter Weller as RoboCop. Yeah, me too. That's important because yeah. they may. And whenever people complain about the remake, I would just be like, let's be real here. They fucked the franchise up decades ago. So it's not like this fucking new movie is the thing that shits on RoboCop. <laughs> RoboCop 3 shit on RoboCop. That's RoboCop, true. all those made for TV shows they shot in Toronto yeah. fucking shit on RoboCop. Well, I mean, they've been ringing that thing out for a while. I mean, it's, yeah. no, it's not going to be any different now, I feel like. I have a soft spot for RoboCop 2, but it is not RoboCop 1. Yeah, it's when the ED-209 like rolls down the stairs. That's it like makes peak. it like the fucking dinosaur sound? Yeah, it was like peak uh, <laughs> Phil Tippett mo- stop motion. That was I love like, that shit. Yeah, it was great. Because you feel it's real. I think CGI looks can look really good. Like I'm not against it, but I definitely think it works better as an embellishment because sometimes it feels... It's weird. Thousands of hours go into that, so it's not to say that it's easier, mm-hmm. but I feel the work more when I see stop frame animation i feel the work more when i see real makeup effects versus a cgi character even though it probably takes so many more people so many more hours to produce a cgi character and there's a lot of work that goes into it like that's there's no denying that but like i was watching legend the other day and the makeup effects in that movie are so good yeah and they're so real like everybody like obviously darkness but fucking Mucklebones Meg yeah. it looks so creepy yeah because it's real yeah and I don't know there's just something about it and stop frame animation even though it's not as smooth and it's jerky fucking you know when the Terminator is chasing Kyle Reese and he's fucking stop frame animation yeah I love it it's like meta- it makes well, me happy it, it has a special kind of charm to it too I think it's got like a it's got a menace, and I'm I'm really with you on the. Um, I think computer stuff is far more effective when it's just sort of slightly augmenting. That's why I always loved about uh, Alfonso Cuarón. Like when he, all of his films are genius. Like Children of Men is a genius film in that it employs computer effects, but they're so subtle that you're not drawn to them. You know, it's not it's not Superman flying through a building because I believe subconsciously you know when things are fake. So even when they look really good. Like, um, what I like about Christopher Nolan movies is that he doesn't really do anything with the camera that's unnatural. Yeah. So, when I'm watching Dark Knight, which is awesome, it's like, there's a ton of CGI in that film. But it's like, the camera never does anything weird. So, you you accept, you know, like, the CGI building extensions or, like, the fucking helicopter is CGI or whatever. Because what, what Peter Jackson did in Lord of the Rings, which was cool when he did it in Lord of the Rings, until it became the staple of every movie to have these sweeping CGI shots with an army running from left to right at each other, you, you feel it's unnatural because a camera can't do that. Yeah. You know, the way the cameras... I, mean, I love Lord of the Rings, but... It was new and cool. Yeah. And I remember like, oh, weird. Like the camera is like fucking swooping over this epic battle. But now every movie does it. And you're like, well, I can't. I know a camera can't do that. When I watch Avengers, the camera does this stuff that's like, well, a camera can't do that. So I, my brain goes, you know, this is fake. Yeah. And when a director just keeps everything in the frame, like you're just going to do what a camera can actually do and then put the CGI or whatever into those shots. 
it just feels so much more natural and, and or even more kind of obvious things like you know like the movie like where the wild things are where yeah you know all, they're all big they're all people in big fluffy outfits but the faces are cgi i haven't seen that movie since it was in the theater i was like thinking about it the other day because i was like where's that movie where has it gone like it's not I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I was really. I think it's on. It's on. I mean, I own it. Um, yeah. It's not. It's a weird movie. Like I, I need to find it. Yeah, I don't love it, but I appreciate it. Yeah, it had a weird vibe. I feel like that was, there was an era there where, like, I think it was that movie and um, Science of Sleep. Did you ever see that? No, I didn't see that one. That's no. a great movie. But it was like a weird phase where, like, they were making these movies that were sort of like had these very fragile effects. Based stuff going on that was very central to the film, but the films were about very heavy topics. Right. And I really like that. And it's funny because, like, with my daughter, like, you know, I read that book to her a lot. She loves it. And it's kind of crazy reading it as an adult because you're like, this has heavy themes in it, you know? It really does. <laughs> a lot of kids' books are like that, but it's just like, yes. man. I, no, I know what you mean, man. <laughs> Dude, we gotta fucking wind this down, man. Yeah. <laughs> Holy fuck. I don't even know how the fuck I'm gonna put this into a show. This is gonna be like an epic thing. Yeah. Listen, it was fucking uh, nice to meet you, man. Yeah, it was good. Good to talk to you. I I do not look forward to <laughs> the fucking edit. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the I'm looking forward to the little like uh, robot voices the yeah. <laughs> song here. Do you want to uh, do you want to say a little goodbye to the audience? What do people normally say for that? I don't know. I don't know. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> buy my buy my stuff. <laughs> no, I just uh, I don't know if I'd say goodbye so much as just grateful for you to have me on here and listen to me ramble. Well, it was a pleasure. Yeah, man, this has been really good. All right, and that was my conversation with Makeup and Vanity Set. We had a good talk. Anyways, Makeup and Vanity Set is cool. Check out his stuff. Uh, you are sure to dig it. Anyways, guys, that's the end of this week's episode. Tune in next week. And um, that is it. <laughs> Bye.